Welcome to Health Media Now with award-winning author and host, Denise Messenger, for a lifetime of health empowerment. Live by being in the pink, meaning P stands for being persistent, I stands for using your intuition, N stands for networking, and K stands for obtaining knowledge. Our guests entertain and share cutting-edge information. They share with you what may have taken years to achieve through experience in their field. Become inspired and motivated. Reach your full potential with fascinating tips and products. Receive a lifetime of benefits from authors, doctors, practitioners, healthcare providers, and learn about exciting new products. You asked for it, and we deliver. Now, here's your host, Denise Messenger. Hello, listeners. Thank you so much for joining us today, which is February 6th, 2019. We have a really great guest for you today. His name is Glenn Levinston, Ph.D., and we're going to be talking about binge eating. He recently came out with a book called Never Binge Again. A little background on Glenn. He's a veteran psychologist, and he was a longtime CEO of a multimillion-dollar consulting firm, and they service several Fortune 500 clients in the food industry. But when it came to his disillusionment with traditional psychology uh, relative to offering advice on overweight and food-obsessed people, he decided he needed to do something. And so with decades of research on binging and overeating, he came up with this book. And so let's bring him on to our show now. Hi, Glenn. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi there. I've been looking forward to it. Nice to be here. Great. I always like to start by asking my guest, how did you get on the path that you're on today? In other words, where did it all begin? Well, I could talk about that for 45 minutes, so you'll have to interrupt me when you need to. But um, the long story short is that I'm I'm not just a guy who decided he wanted to work with binge eaters. I, I had a really serious problem myself. Okay. And, yeah. And... When I was about 17, I'm 6'4", I'm reasonably muscular, and so I discovered that if I worked out for two or three hours a day, I could eat whatever I wanted to. You know, multiple pizzas, uh, multiple bars of chocolate, boxes of muffins, boxes of donuts. It didn't really matter. Whatever I wanted to eat, I was okay. At least I wasn't getting weight um, because I was working out like that. And I didn't think it was a problem. I thought it was great. An awful <laughs> lot of, <laughs> I did. But when I got older and I was married and I was commuting several hours both ways to a clinic and I had patience and responsibilities, I just didn't have the time to work out like that. But I found that the foods had a life of their own. I, I couldn't, you know, I couldn't stop. And I would be sitting and working with a suicidal patient, and I just wasn't really totally there, which was scary. I never lost anybody, thank God. But mm. I wasn't totally there because I was thinking about when I could get to the deli or when I could get the oh next pizza. Oh, my gosh. Wow. Yeah. And, and, you know, if you know anything about psychology, it's not really just an intellectual endeavor where you put a puzzle piece together and come up with an answer. You, 
you have to be there and lend people your soul. You have to be really present. And I, I wasn't. It really bothered me. And I'm from a family of 17 therapists, and that was the most important thing in my life. So being from a family of 17 psychologists and therapists, I went the psychological route. And I looked really hard for where the hole in my heart might be. I figured that's what I was trying to fill. Mm. And I went, so I went, I went to doctors. I went to psychologists, psychotherapists, psychiatrists. I took medication. I went to Overeaters Anonymous for a lot of years. And it was a really soulful journey, which I don't regret at all, because I feel like it made a big impact on who I am today. But it didn't solve the eating problem. I'd get a little better and then a lot worse. I'd get a little better and a lot worse. Eventually, it started to dawn on me that maybe I had the wrong paradigm. Maybe you couldn't really love yourself thin. Maybe it wasn't about nurturing your inner wounded child back to health. Maybe it was more like you were the alpha wolf and there was this challenger for leadership in the pack. And when there's a, you know, when another wolf in the pack challenges the alpha wolf, the alpha wolf doesn't say, oh my goodness, someone needs a hug. The alpha wolf snarls and growls and says, look, step out of line or I'll kill you. Or, you know, get mm-hmm. back in line or I'll right? Mm-hmm. And so maybe it was more like capturing and caging a, a rabbit animal. And there were a couple of things that happened all at once that really brought me to that conclusion. What, one of them was I've been doing a lot of consulting for big food, big pharma, and I figured that if they were paying me all this money for the research that maybe these studies are worth something. So I did one for myself. And over the course of about five years when Internet clicks were cheap, I, I got 40,000 people to take a survey. Uh, over the internet. And what the survey essentially did was ask people what foods they had trouble with, like what did they crave that they couldn't stop eating? And what areas of life were they stressed were they stressed in? And I was looking for correlations and I found that people who started their binges with chocolate, which I always did, if they had trouble with chocolate, they tended to be lonely or brokenhearted. And if they struggled with uh, salty, crunchy things, then they tended to be stressed at work. If they struggled with um, if they struggled with bread or pasta or like soft, chewy things, they tended to be stressed at home. I thought that was really interesting, and mm-hmm. I will tell you upfront, it didn't solve the problem at all. But I thought it was really interesting. I got a lot of press for that. I was on a lot of different media shows and got a little famous for having done that study, but it didn't really help. Here's why it didn't uh, help. I'll tell you a story about my mom that makes makes it a little clearer. I, I went to my mom and I said, Mom, you know, I, I'm a chocoholic. You know that. And she was also. And I said, I'm, you know, I'm in a bad marriage. It makes sense that I'm, you know, it's, it makes sense that I'm struggling with chocolate from that perspective given this data. But what about my upbringing? Was there anything in my upbringing that, could have, you know, could have set up this pattern. And she gets this horrible sound in her voice, and she says, honey, I'm so sorry. I said, what do you mean? She goes, I'm so sorry, Glenn. I said, but when you were about one year old, 1965, my father had just gotten out of prison, and her father and my grandfather. 
And he was guilty. And I had idolized him my whole life. And I had no idea he was doing these things. But he was guilty. And I was horribly depressed about it. And sometimes I was just sitting and staring at the wall. And I didn't have the wherewithal to hug you and love you when you came running to me to, to feed you. And on top of that, your dad, my husband, was a captain in the Army. And they were talking about sending him to Vietnam. And, you know, I, we were planning a second kid. And I thought, am I just going to be a, am I going to be a widow, single mother of two kids? And so I did something I probably shouldn't have done, but I got a, a little refrigerator and I put it on the floor. And in that refrigerator, I put a big bottle of Bosco chocolate syrup. And when you would come running to me, wanting to be fed or held or, you know, or loved, I would say, honey, go get your Bosco. And you'd go rushing over to the Bosco, crawling over to the Bosco in the refrigerator. You'd take it out of the refrigerator, you'd open it up, and you'd suck on the bottle, and you'd go into a chocolate sugar coma. And I thought, wow, this is, that's got to be it. That's what happened. And if it were the movies, then mom and I would have a great big hug and a great big cry, and we'd forgive each other, and I'd never have chocolate again. Mm. Well, well, I mean, we had that psychological healing. We had the hug and the cry, metaphorically, we're on Skype. But my chocolate eating actually got worse. I certainly forgave oh, yeah. myself. I was, yeah. And the reason it got worse was because of this little voice in my head, which said something like, hey, Glenn, you know what? You're right. Our mama didn't love us enough. She left a great big hole in our heart. And until we can figure out how to find the love of our life, we're going to have to go binge on chocolate. Let's go fill it up. Fill up that hole in your heart. Go get some right now. Yippee. So it was like there was this voice of justification inside of me that was using the opportunity of this emotional insight mm-hmm. to say, let's binge even more. And I found th- similar things when I talked to people that struggled with bread and bagels. You know, they would say, well, things are so horrible at home and until we can figure out how, you know, until the kids go to college and there's less stress at home, we're, we're just going to have to binge on bagels and pasta. And so I thought, hmm, that's really interesting. So the knowledge, knowing why, is not necessarily going to fix this. Loving myself more is not necessarily going to fix this. At the same time, the consulting I was doing for the big food companies showed me how many billions of dollars they were putting into developing these hyperpalatable concentrations of starch and sugar and fat and oil and cytotoxins and salt. They, they're really engineering these things to hit our bliss points without giving us the nutrition to make us feel satisfied. Oh, wow. And yeah, like, like for example, I remember one vice president of marketing telling me for a major food bar manufacturer saying that the most profitable insight they had was to take the vitamins out of their bars and to put the money into the packaging instead. And so I said, so you mean to tell me that you guys are faking us out? You're making it really look healthy because they had this vibrant, colorful packaging. You're making it look really healthy, but it's not. And he got a little sheep and he says, that's what I'm telling you. And that's perfectly mm. legal, and it goes, goes on all across the food industry. Like, a, you know, a diversity of colors in nature is supposed to signal a diversity of nutrients. 
Yeah. And and so he um so I said, okay. And so there's incre- there's this incredibly powerful um force aligned against us in a way. And and I looked at the animal studies on what happens when you short circuit the pleasure mechanism and if you put an electrode in a rat's brain, for example, where the pleasure center is, and you let mm-hmm. them self-stimulate, they, they forget about their survival needs. They, they just press the button all day long. They, they, um, the electrode is connected to a lever so they can self-stimulate the pleasure center. And if, if they're starving, they'll walk away from their food to, pl- to press that button thousands of times a day. If they're, if they're nursing, like a nursing mother rat will walk away from her children her nursing pups to press the button thousands of times a day. They'll even crawl over painful electrical grids to press that button thousands of times a day. And it's like their survival drive has been hijacked. Mm-hmm. And, and now I know you're saying, well, Glenn, are you paranoid? Do you think that there are electrodes in our brains? I don't, but you know, you can walk out of McDonald's and see a Burger King across the street in most cities these days. And you think about the chemicals that are in these foods and the, mm-hmm. um, and, and, you know, I'm not saying chocolate's a drug, but there weren't any chocolate bars in the Savannah. We didn't have chocolate bars in the, um, in the tropics as we were evolving. And so, um, you know, I don't think we're that far from being given those pleasure buttons. So I think, okay, these foods are really, really powerful then the advertising industry is sending five to 7,000 messages a year at us over the internet and the airwaves. And maybe a half dozen of them are about fruit and vegetables and the rest are about these engineered foods. Mm-hmm. And, st- and, and then the addiction treatment industry says you can't quit even if you wanted to. The best you can do is abstain one day at a time. And you put it all together. And I think there are just in- these incredibly powerful forces aligned against us. And we shouldn't be blaming ourselves and our genetic history and looking at our ancestors. And what we should be doing is erecting an appropriate defense. Like people should be making more conscious decisions about what they think is healthy and what isn't healthy, what they're willing to put in their body or not. They should be informed that every time they're looking for love at the bottom of a bag or a box or container, there's some, you know, fat cat in a white suit with a mustache that's laughing all the way to the bank. Mm-hmm. And, and and we should be turning our shame into anger. We should be, you know, involved in activism and um, trying to put more regulations on the food industry and things like that. But, but, okay, the last thing I figured out, and then I'll tell you how I came up with a solution, was that the part of our brain that's being targeted by these addictive substances it's not really the higher parts of the brain where our human identity and love in particular might lie. It's, it's the lizard brain. It's, it's the midbrain. It's the um, more primitive part of the brain, which doesn't know love. When the lizard brain sees something in the environment, it says, do I eat it? Do I mate with it? Or do I kill it? It's eat, mate, or kill. There's no, there's no love there. And so, it's it just all came together when I said you can't you just can't love yourself thin. So here's what I did. 
I decided that my inner lizard brain, and I was never going to share this. This is not going to be something that I was going to talk about publicly. It's just, it's just how I did it. My inner lizard brain, that's my inner pig. And I'm going to draw a line on the sand. And for example, since I always started my binges with chocolate, I'd say I'm only going to have chocolate on the last weekend of the calendar month. Other than that, I don't eat chocolate ever. And that way, if I heard any voice in my head that suggested, you know, Glenn, you worked out hard enough, you could afford it, you could start tomorrow. Um, chocolate comes from a cocoa bean and that grows on a plant, so it's a vegetable. Any, any crazy voice in my head that was trying to justify eating chocolate on anything but the last weekend of the calendar month, I'd say, that's my pig. I don't want that my pig does. My pig is squealing for pig slop. And I don't eat pig slop, and I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. And after almost 30 years of suffering and looking for these depthful psychological answers, what helped me was I don't eat pig slop, and I don't let farm animals tell me what to do. It was really primitive. It was really crude. And like I said, I never thought I was going to be sharing it. Mm-hmm. But it was, giving, it was giving me those extra microseconds at the moment of impulse to to wake up and remember who I was and what I wanted to do with food. And that's, um, that's what got me better. It, you know, I, I went from, I was probably around 280 at my height. I, I weighed in at 257. Then I stopped weighing myself and I'm guessing I was about 280. And I, my triglycerides were through the roof. The doctors were telling me I was going to die, but that all went away. I, um, I hover between 200 and 210 most days, and my triglycerides are gone. My psoriasis and eczema is gone. It's it's um it's pretty amazing, but what not a miracle. Not... Oh no! Now what I eat doesn't have to be what you eat. The, the one of the things I figured out is is that, and I will answer you in a second. One of the things I figured out was that people the pig will rebel against anybody else telling them what to do. Mm-hmm. And so even if you're going to follow some other diet guru's diet, you really have to own it 100% for yourself. Anyway, over the years, I would start to replace the things that I was craving with something a little healthier. So, for example, mm-hmm. if, I wanted, if I wanted pasta with cheese, I would have brown rice with a little tomato sauce and maybe some nutritional yeast. When I wanted a chocolate bar, I would have, um, I would have a kale banana smoothie. Because I, I kept asking myself, what is my survival drive really craving? Before it was hijacked, what did it really want? What would I have eaten in, in the tropics or in the savannah if I, was, if I was evolving without all these crazy foods around? And so over the years, I really evolved to have more and more fruits and vegetables and less and less, um, you know, less and less industrial food. Mm-hmm. And it's not entirely my diet, but it's, um, it's largely what I have. And I just, I, I have a mentor who told me I should never have to recover from a meal. And I discovered that some of the only things I don't have to recover from are fruits and vegetables. And so I just ate more and more fruits and vegetables and I felt better and better mm-hmm. and I was less and less hungry. I had less and less cravings, and 
you know, you you probably most people listening to this probably don't like fruits and vegetables all that much if they're addicted to some of the industrial foods. But um, yeah, that's what happened to me. I just I, I eat oh, more I, fruits and vegetables. That's what I eat mostly fruits and vegetables, but. My blood type likes to have like chicken and fish too. So. Sure. Sure. So so that's what worked for me, and that's that's what I eat. And I, you know, it's a strange world. It's not what I set out to do. But now, I I kept the journal for eight years. I published it on a request of a the CEO of a minor publishing company I was part of because he wanted to do a marketing experiment, and it took off. The thing took off, and we've got 600,000 copies in distri- distribution. And That's every a now lot. And then I'm in, it is. Sometimes in a, I'm in a bookstore, and someone comes over and points at me and goes, pig guy, pig guy, pig guy. So, oh, how funny. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you're talking about Never Binge Again? Yeah, so that book turned into Never Binge Again, and mm-hmm. um, uh, and and then we, you know, we, we decided to give it away for free because it was helping so many people. So you can get that at the website. You can get it for free, neverbingeagain.com. Mm-hmm. And um, um, we we recorded all kinds of demonstrations, and and that's what I do now. I actually do it full time now. I, I oh, that's wonderful. Evolve in that direction. That's really so great. Tell, tell me what else you'd like the listeners to know. Do you want to hear a little more about what they could do to? Yes, that was going to be my next question. What works best is if you separate the control phase from the weight loss phase. So this is a strange game. It's a strange way to construct your mind. So it's a little mental trick, and it's best if you learn the mental trick first and start to feel like you've got control and, um, and power back. So I ask people, what's the worst trigger food or behavior that you have that's getting you in trouble? And what's the smallest thing that you could do? What's the smallest rule that you could construct that would make a big difference? So for some people, they get in trouble eating in the car. They're always eating in the car and... You know, that's where they do the most damage. So maybe they're going to say, I'll never eat in the car again. For other people, it's a particular food. Like for me, it was chocolate, and I had to have a regulation around chocolate. For some people, it's more like they need to add things to their life. So I'll always have five servings of fruit and vegetables every day, or I'll always start my day with two big glasses of pure spring water or something like that. And other people need things that, force them to be more mindful. So I'll always put my fork down between bites or I'll never eat in front of the TV again, those kind of things. Mm -hmm. But create a rule, not a guideline. What you don't want to do is say, I'll eat well 90% of the time and, you know, I can just indulge myself 10% of the time because then every time you're in front of a chocolate bar at Starbucks, you have to make another decision is this part of the 90% or part of the 10%? And decisions wear down your willpower. Whereas if I say I only eat chocolate on the last weekend of the calendar month, then all of my chocolate decisions have been made for me all month long. 
So um, so make one rule, and then watch yourself try to break it. Declare yourself 100% confident, but then watch yourself try to break it. And then when you hear a voice in your head trying to get you to break it, remind yourself that that's not you, that's your lizard brain. Come up with a name for it. You don't have to call it your pig. Some people don't like to call it a pig. Call it your food demon, your food monster, whatever you want to call it. But it's it's not a cuddly part of you that you're trying to nurture. It's not a wounded part of you trying to integrate back into yourself. It's not like in gestalt therapy. This is not psychotherapy. This is um, it's just a trick of mind to separate your constructive and destructive thoughts. Mm-hmm. And and then don't argue with it. Just Just ignore it. Because you know that no matter how smart its argument is, it's only leading one place, and that place is really bad. So, <laughs> yeah. true. Right. So even if it has a PhD from Harvard, even if it sounds brilliant, <laughs> y- y- you don't have to have the answer. You can just ignore it. Uh, wonderful. And your your pig will tell you that you're going to be tortured forever, that if you change this behavior, you're going to feel too deprived, you're going to feel tortured but by the principles of um, upregulation and downregulation, the brain adjusts and the pleasure system adjusts to the stimuli that are repeated to it. So if you have a chocolate bar every day, that's a concentration of pleasure that didn't exist in nature. And your brain is going to adjust to that by downregulating it's a pleasure response. So the taste buds aren't going to respond as much as they used to, to normal things. Now it's going to require something supersized to give you that, that taste hit. And your pleasure center is not going to respond either. So at a certain point when people have been eating chocolate or sugar or starch all the time, they feel like they need it to feel normal. And that's where you have sayings like just hand over the chocolate and nobody gets hurt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But the good news is, is that if you let go of that, if you, you know, change it up to not have so frequently, your taste buds readjust and you start to be able to taste the subtle sugars and fruits and vegetables again in ways that you never thought possible. And you're not deprived forever. It's the first hundred hours are the hardest. And I think, I think the research says that within four to eight weeks, your taste buds double in sensitivity. It's a, um, it's not anywhere near as long as you think it's going to be before you feel much, much better. So um, so don't let your pig fool you. Um, tough it out for those first 100 hours or so. Get, you know, drink some water. Um, you know, take some deep breaths when you have those cravings. The, the cravings tend to be a stimulation of the fight-or-flight response. It's, it's like the... Um, it's like the brain thinks that you're going through a period of famine and all of a sudden there's this excess of food available and it says I'd better hoard it, better get as much as I can right now. Mm-hmm. And, and you're in that like fight or flight action response. And what you want to do is try to activate your parasympathetic nervous system to take you out of that and get you into a more relaxed state of mind. Like, tell yourself there's no danger, this isn't an emergency. So you could tense up all your muscles and take a really deep breath and then let it all out a couple of times and see if that takes you out of fight or flight. You could do all the traditional corny things that 
relaxed people, like going for a walk or, um, you know, calling a friend or doing some yoga or meditating mm-hmm. or mm-hmm. having a cup of tea or something like that. Any of those things can, can help also. But get through that first 100 hours, no matter what. You might, you might just be 100 hours from freedom, and people rarely give themselves that 100 hours to, to get over the hump. So um, that's how you do it. Uh, are there relapses? Well, that's a funny word because a relapse assumes that you have a disease. And mm-hmm. I don't believe that binge eating is a disease. I believe that I believe that it's a healthy appetite that's been hijacked by industry. So there is no relapse of something that isn't a disease okay. in the first place. However, do people slip? Yeah, they do course they do and it's not like I had this insight and then I was perfect right away what Mm. happened was the miracle was that I knew that I wasn't powerless that I realized that there was this thing I could do to restore my sense of agency and free will and then sometimes I would make the wrong choice anyway but at least I knew it was me making the wrong choice and not some irresistible urge that Mm -hmm. I didn't have any choice about And once I realized that I was making that choice, and once I realized that nobody was telling me what to eat, I could create any food plan that I wanted to, I said, well, this is silly. Let me just make the food plan that I want to make, and I'll adjust it until I'm happy with it. And then I slowly stopped making those choices. So um, the book is called Never Binge Again for a couple of reasons. First of all, it turns out that it's better. The psychology of winning it's more of a commitment with perfection, even if you're going to forgive yourself with dignity. So think of an Olympic archer. They aim the arrow at the bullseye, and before they let go of the arrow, they're not thinking, maybe I'll make it, maybe I won't. I'll just do the best I can. They need to see that arrow going into the bullseye before they let go of it. It's a perfect commitment. That's the psychology of winning because it allows you to purge your mind of doubt and distraction. If they miss the bullseye, they don't say, oh, my goodness, um, I'm, I'm a pathetic archer. I might as well just shoot all the arrows into the audience or up in the air. They get back up and they aim at the bullseye again. And so, so the first thing you have to get over is the idea that of this progress, not perfection thing. That, that's appropriate after you make a mistake to be easy on yourself and take it seriously and figure out what went wrong, but, you know, not to overly criticize yourself so you can get back up and do it again. Mm-hmm. But when you are aiming at the bullseye, you really want to commit with perfection. And the equivalent of that is presenting the food rules to your pig as if they were set in stone, even though you know that you can change them later on with, with forethought and consideration. And I recommend people give themselves 24 to 48 hours before those rules changes take effect. So um, another way to look out of it is when a, when a child is very young, there are certain things they really just shouldn't think about. So I, I told my niece when she was two years old that when we were crossing the street, she could never, ever, ever, ever cross the street without holding my hand. Never, ever, ever again. She could never do it. I didn't say, listen, Sarah, when you're seven or eight years old, I'm going to teach you how to look both ways and do it, because I didn't want her even thinking about it. It was too dangerous. Mm -hmm. 
did I lie to her? Was that unethical? Did I do something wrong? No, I don't think so. I, I would do it again in a heartbeat because I don't want her getting hurt. I want her to be able to focus on my hand and crossing the street holding my hand. It's the same with food. You make a rule that says, you know, I will never eat chocolate again because you know that your pig acts like a two-year-old with chocolate. But mm-hmm. suppose there's a study that comes out that says chocolate is life-saving or anti-carcinogenic. Or suppose that um, you just decide that you might like to have chocolate once in a while. You've been without it for a couple of months, and you decide that maybe it's a good idea to have it once in a while in a very specific way. Well, with experience and wisdom and education, you have to be able to evolve your plan. You just um, you just don't tell your pig that. You present it as if it were set in stone. The last reason to name the book Never Binge Again um, was because it, it wouldn't be very appealing if it said, you know, binge sometimes and kind of sort of get better. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. so I called it Never Binge Again, so that really captured the essence of yeah, it really did. It really did. Well, thank you so much for coming on our show. And um, why don't you let our listeners know your website again, and if they want to purchase your book, where they can find it. I know you earlier stated it; they could get it for free. But if they really would like a hard copy, where could they get it? Well, you, you, you can get that all at the website. What I recommend you do is go to neverbingeagain.com and click the big red button you'll see a reader bonus list you can sign up for. When you do that, I will get you the electronic copy for free in Kindle Nook or PDF format. I'll show you where you can get the paperback or the audible version. And more importantly, I did two other things. I provided a set of food plan starter templates for just about any diet. So whether it's a... um, you know, ketogenic or macrobiotic or point counting or calorie counting or high carb or low carb, whatever it happens to be, you can you can find a set of rules to get you started there. You need to make it your own. You need to revise them to make them your own, but you'll get started there. And I recorded a set of coaching sessions with people so you could see what this is like in practice. I, I know it sounds really weird and harsh in theory, and you're probably thinking, mm-hmm. Why is this psychologist coming on the radio and talking about having a pig inside him? But um, <laughs> I, I promise you it's compassionate and life-giving. It's, just go to neverbingeagain.com and click the big red button. Thank you so much, Glenn Livingston. You've been a pleasure. As have you. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. All right, listeners, that wraps up our show for today. Please join us again next Wednesday. We'll have another great guest. Till then, please be well. Bye-bye. We celebrate our listeners worldwide and invite you to contact Denise at www.healthmedianow.com with any questions you may have. And follow her on Twitter at healthmedianow and Facebook at Health Media Now. For those interested in an advertising campaign on her show, contact Lisa at knowledgeworkspub.com. Be sure to visit gotcancernowwhat.com for information on Denise Messenger's award-winning book, Got Cancer? Now What?
tonight, it is TV's most inspiring competition. The Titan Games. Followed by Brooklyn Nine-Nine. With special guest Craig Robinson. Next, it's the outrageously hilarious Will and Grace. Then it's an SVU that'll keep you guessing. They all do. True that. Tonight on NBC. And think there's no reason to stay up until 11? Let's do the math. Four radars, more choppers, and this team equals more coverage at 11. Chuck, Colleen, Fritz, Fred. Call on these four before you call it a night. NBC4 News at 11. Tonight, it is TV's most inspiring competition. The Titan Games. Followed by Brooklyn Nine-Nine. With special guest Craig Robinson. Next, it's the outrageously hilarious Will and Grace. Then it's an SVU that'll keep you guessing. They all do. True that. Tonight on NBC. And think there's no reason to stay up until 11? Let's do the math. Four radars, more choppers, and this team equals more coverage at 11. Chuck, Colleen, Fritz, Fred. Call on these four before you call it a night. NBC4 News at 11.